Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Mets and Marlins game tonight has been postponed. Uh, the Subway Series was set to begin tomorrow. That has now been postponed. Game one uh, is, has been postponed. Um, and Anthony McCarron, we have been uh, talking for uh, quite some time. Uh, when the season had been postponed, we were waiting so long for, for baseball about the options that Major League Baseball had in front of it. They decided not to go with the bubble plan. And you really continue to see what makes it so difficult once the, the Mets actually get on a plane, fly down to Florida for the first time, and now you see the repercussions of doing something like that potentially. This is about protecting everyone, and not just the people inside of baseball, but they're coming into contact with their family. This is bigger than the game. They're doing the right thing by postponing it. They're going to try to isolate it, try to figure out whether it's a false positive or, or not. They're doing the right thing, understanding that this is bigger. This is a, a worldwide thing, and it's about human beings and keeping everyone safe. And I, I think they're doing the right thing moving forward. And it, and it just goes to show you how fragile this game can be in, a, in this atmosphere. And it humanizes it a little bit, and it, and it makes you take a step back and appreciate the games that are going on, but also put it into perspective of, of people's lives that are at risk. The first question, I think the scary part here for the Mets and for baseball is that we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, the Mets' official version of this was that they didn't do anything wrong, nobody went out on the road, nobody snuck out or broke protocols. And I checked to make sure that was true, and there really are no uh, secret stories going around the clubhouse right now about, uh, oh, this guy snuck out or anything like that. And the Mets have been good about this stuff this year. So the fear then is, if the virus somehow got into our team, uh, what hope does anybody else have? It seems pretty random right now, and they don't know. Uh, so what's next is... Uh, crossing their fingers and awaiting uh, the results of now the frequent testing that they're doing. Team flew back from Miami. Uh, they're quarantining. They're undergoing daily testing. They're not working out. And if everything goes absolutely perfectly with no more positives, 
You could be looking at a Mets-Yankees doubleheader on Monday. Uh, but again, that's kind of if things stay where they are and uh, hopefully nothing gets worse. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, August 24th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me personally, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. You know, a uh, lot to unpack here. Uh, Going to finally dive into the ownership situation that's heating up. Seth Lugo's in the rotation. we got to address that. That's big. That's important not only for this year and with the theme of this podcast throughout the pandemic-shortened season. Uh, the theme has been what is important to see and to do this year for 2021 and beyond. And Seth Lugo to the rotation certainly plays into that. Of course, we haven't had any baseball for about four or five days because of the situation where the Mets had a couple of players test positive. We're hoping they're healthy, and I'm, and I'm sure they're healthy and safe, and looks like we should have baseball uh, coming this week against the Mets and the Marlins, a bunch of doubleheaders probably for the Subway Series. And this is just part and parcel as to what the baseball season is all about. But what I think is most important, and as I was thinking about starting this podcast, I was looking at, Pete Alonzo's Instagram post, and I think it's important to really, I mean, he says it best how maybe I feel, but I don't articulate it the way that Pete does, and certainly a lot of this stuff, and I'm always against sugar rush Instagram posts that, you know, sound good but mean very little, but I think Pete really, if he's living this, and I'm sure he is, says it best when he goes, sometimes the only thing you can do in life is smile. There's a lot of BS and negativity that is in our world. We can choose to cave in and keep feeding the negative energy or we can choose to find the good. Every day is a blessing regardless of the circumstance. And that, to me, is how we need to look at this baseball season. Yeah, it's not ideal. It's not what we want. Certainly, and an executive called it a exhibition season on steroids, which I agree, I've called it a tournament. Whatever you want to call it, it's not what we will ever consider a normal season or a banner season. I'm sorry, I don't care what comes out of this. Getting through it, I think, is an accomplishment, and I think it's important. But what bothers me is because every time there is something that comes up virus-related in this sport, right away the media tries to find the lowest common denominator and finds the negativity. Well, who broke protocol, and you know what could they have done, and why did they start the season? And then you have a guy like Andy Martino of SNY, who I like, I think does good reporting. I have no problem with him. I know some people get really angry with him who scolds the fans for not having any empathy, because that's not true. Nobody wants to see anybody get sick, and I have plenty of empathy for someone who gets sick. But to sit here and say, you know, they're, they're doing this to make a living and to entertain us and make it sound like the players are doing us a favor, well, guess what? That's where the negativity, that's where the wrong narrative gets put into play. And I'll, I'll just tell you this before we get to the real meat and potatoes of the program and, and what this is about, which is the team. 
they're doing this to make a living, just like you're doing stuff to make a living, I'm doing stuff to make a living, and their safety and security is no more important, no less important than ours. And I find it highly disrespectful when writers, and Martino has done this a number of times, act like, oh my God, they're putting all their, their lives on the line uh, to entertain us. Guess what? We're all going out there every day, whether it's a pandemic or not, and we can not make it home. So to act like all of a sudden this bubble that we were living in is gone, it never existed. And to disrespect those who have worked in hospitals, who have made deliveries, who've worked in supermarkets, who've tr taken public transportation, whether it's through a blue-collar job, a white-collar job, whatever the job is, and make it sound like uh, we don't care or we don't have empathy, we have plenty of empathy because you know what those people are doing? Whether they're called essential, non-essential, I don't care what you call them. They're going out there and they're pushing forward and they're making a living. Because they know there's better days ahead and they're not waiting for someone to make it for them. They're not waiting for the media to tell you it's okay to go out. Because if you wait for that, you'll you'll be sitting home for the rest of your life. And they're trying, at least if the players did it. Yes, they're doing it to make a living. The players could have easily bounced on this. Taken whatever money they've been fronted and bounced on this. And I don't think that that would have been a crazy situation. Now, they would have been the only sport NFL will be playing this winter. I'm sure Roger Goodell is not going to let the media shut him down. Uh... The NBA and the NHL is in full force. Whether you like the bubble games or not, I'm not really crazy. It seems like Olympic pool play. I don't think it's as good of an environment as as what you normally would get for the NBA, but I understand it is what it is. You know, baseball could have put itself behind as a sport and jeopardized the sport and their livelihoods. So let's remember, there's a, a responsibility not to the fans, not to me to continue to do a podcast. It's a responsibility for themselves to have, have a, a way to make revenue for the rest of their lives for themselves. What is Peter Alonso going to do? He's going to chop wood? Maybe. He wants to go work on the docks? Maybe. Maybe he's into that. No no crime in that. But I wouldn't give up my livelihood and, and wait for the media or for the government to tell me it's time to come back. Because you do that, you're going to lose what you got. And by no means are they doing me a favor. No means they're doing me a favor. And, and, and I'll tell you what, if that's what the media thinks, that they're doing us a favor... Nobody's doing us any favors. You don't want to come back. You don't want to play baseball. You want to shut the season down. So be it. But think about it. Come next April, if the season plays out, and I'm sure it will, it'll be about 9 out of 12 months that there'll be no games on TV for baseball. And you think the kid that is a new Mets fan might stop finding some other things to do. Might not care about baseball. Might find something to do. Totally unrelated to sports. So be careful about what favors you're doing, people. Because this is still a sport that needs to make money, needs to generate revenue, needs to survive and thrive. And doing it while you listen to the negativity that every positive test. What did, what did you think was going to happen? You thought you were going to get through a, a whole season? There wasn't going to be any tests? Anybody testing positive? And something that we still don't know a lot about? We still don't understand what a positive test means? Certainly not a death sentence like they make it out to be. Jared Hughes looks pretty good. So does Soto. I know Brad Brock now lost a little fastball. That's part of because his routine was killed. You know, anytime you've you've you know had the the socks knocked off by something like this, and I know people have had it. it takes you a while to get back to your normal. You'll you'll get back. I know people have. You'll get back. And there'll be people that unfortunately will have much more severe conditions, and I feel for them. But you know, there's 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 anomalies in every kind of situation, and. I think it's important to remember they're not doing us any favors. They're trying to su survive for themselves, and they're trying to survive for the sport. As far as the Mets, let me put it to you this way. 
play out the season, see where the chips fall. You make the playoffs, you don't, but it's important, and that's where the Seth Lugo conversation comes into play, and as well as not going out there and trying to make some crazy deal, I know the deadline's next week, some crazy deal to try to you know make the playoffs and make a run. There's no need for that. You know, if somebody, if the ownership group wants to take on money, which I doubt, and we'll get into the ownership group in a bit, I doubt they want to take on money and bring in a veteran or bring in any kind of salary. So be it if they cost you nothing. Look what the Phillies did by, you know, trading some. You know, the Red Sox made a deal where it's a player for the future, where they gave up a couple of relievers that are, eh, have potential, certainly can strike a lot of guys out. But, geez, there's a bunch of walks per nine in those relievers they got. But, you want to make a deal like that, you know, if you're on the Red Sox side, the Mets make a deal where, you know, somebody that's not in their plans, they could bring back something of value, fine, but I'm not about acting like this deadline coming up is the same as any other deadline and that competing and winning, and I'm all about going for it. We had a whole podcast about that last week. Not this year. This year is about let's see where the chips fall, play it out, and learn about your 60-man roster, 40-man roster, whatever you want to call it, learn about it. There's a lot more you can learn, and that's what we'll get to next because Seth Lugo right now is getting into that point where there's no turning back. He's going to be a starter, and we got to learn about him, and I think it's much more important than you think, Seth Lugo to the rotation, much more important than you think. We'll talk about that more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. But that really ties into the other issue here, which is Seth Lugo, where the more I look at it and the more I think about it, Seth Lugo's not the answer coming out of the bullpen. And if you go back and look at his career, yes, he has been extraordinarily better out of the bullpen than as a starter. Uh, but Lugo, every time he's had an opportunity to start, and it's been a couple of years since he started on any kind of consistent basis, that was in 2017. He's given you every bit the performance that you could expect from a Zach Wheeler, the 2019 version of uh, Noah Syndergaard, Stephen Matz, and Marcus Stroman. The only bar he hasn't hit is Jacob deGrom, and you know that's, that's a high bar at, that, at this point. He knows how to pitch. Uh, he has multiple pitches. I believe uh, as you stretch him out, he'll be able to uh, potentially go six innings. Uh, I don't know. You know, He's going to probably finish with about 80 innings this year. I don't know how many innings you could expect out of him next year. But uh, even if you got 140, 150 innings, maybe you got 25 starts out of him, uh, something along those lines, maybe you skip him a few times, limit him to five innings and others when there's blowouts. Uh, I think uh, the future of Seth Lugo is going to be in the starting rotation, not in the bullpen. Because as Mickey said on Mike Francesca's show on Friday, you have to know what you have with Lugo out of the bullpen, which very few back-to-backs, some situations where he may need to go uh, two days rest in between, doesn't lend itself to being a, a true uh, closer. You could co-close with Diaz at some point with that when they you know play off of each other. He's more ways he's like an opener in some cases, really, if you think about that. And I'm, I know Mickey's against the opener, and I'm not quite sure I'm 
all for the opener. Had you fooled there, huh? You thought I uh, forgot to bring the music back on and maybe that I cut up the thing incorrectly, the podcast. But that's a, a quote or a comment I made back in September, right after, I believe, the Philly series. That, that, you know, there was the game that Edwin Diaz blew on the Friday night that the Mets had to come back and win. I think it was Ria Muto hit a home run. Then they got blown out the next night, and then they had an awful, ugly five-hour game on Sunday where Syndergaard couldn't I, I shut the Phillies down and became an ugly game. And I think that's when Callaway potentially walked uh, to get to Bryce Harper. A lot of stuff happened there. But back then, it was a conversation already about Seth Lugo going to the rotation. And I remember, and this got lost as we got into the offseason, we got into the managerial search, we got into the sign stealing, we got into everything but baseball related from last offseason. I was very much, because of the frustration that you experienced down the stretch, where you really needed Lugo on some days, but he was not available, where you really were managing the bullpen, where tonight is a two-inning Lugo game, and then you know you're not going to get him for a game or two. And seeing that, I was like, well, if the guy wants to be a starter and this is what his role in the bullpen will be, it's still very valuable. I mean, if you told me you had Seth Lugo for two innings every other day, uh, you know, that gives you three out of five days, there's still a tremendous amount, especially with the state of the bullpen this year, of value in that. The problem is that's not a closer in the purest sense of the word. You need a closer who can go four out of five days, can go three days in a row in a big series. And that's not Seth Lugo. And you heard... Going back to what Mickey Callaway, uh, say what you want about Callaway as a manager. He knows pitching. Callaway said, you got to know what you're getting, and you don't know what you're getting when you come to the ballpark. He may need more time to warm up. He may not be able to go back-to-back. He may not be able to go a couple of innings. You just don't know. And at this point, the guy wants to start. He's still got two arbitration-eligible years before free agency. The only way for this guy to make any money in a very uncertain economic time where I don't know if starting pitchers or relievers are going to make the kind of money that they think they should make or what they certainly have been making, is to have him go out there and use the rest of 2020 as a buildup. Use him as an opportunity where I guess you could call him an opener and he'll do three innings and maybe four innings. And If you go back to 2018, he was able to build himself up to five or six innings pretty quickly. Now, I know he's got some of the elbow issues. I don't know what the status is of his partially torn ligament if that's even an issue anymore. But knowing that he can't go back-to-back, knowing that he's had some restrictions as a reliever, I'm guessing that that's still in play. Seth Lugo, when he came in in 2016 as a nobody, not really a hyped-up prospect, helped save the season along with Robert Gazelman. You had no DeGrom. You had no Harvey. Uh, Mats went down at some point late in the year. You basically had Noah Syndergaard and Bartolo Colon and those two kids, and they pitched well. And then he came back the next year, and he had the ligament issue, and I know he had a tougher year because he was trying to you know, come back and figure all that out. But even when he pitched in 2018 as a starter middle of that year when the Mets needed it, he pitched very well. You moved him from the bullpen to the rotation and threw him in there, and he did have a couple of stickers in there. But he also, I went back, you know, he pitched very well in the Subway Series game against a very powerful Yankees lineup in a 2 nothing victory. That was like his, what, his first or second start? So the guy has it. And I'm not, I don't think there's a lot of puffery in that in this statement. What you got out of nowhere Syndergaard last year, I think Seth Lugo could do. I don't think he's too far away from giving you a lot of what Zach Wheeler gave you 
at times. Now, Wheeler's extended with Philadelphia, you know, another seven-inning two-run game against Atlanta the other day. So maybe that's unfair. He's certainly not Jacob deGrom. But if you look at this rotation and you look at what's out there, why can't Seth Lugo be a number three? What's so difficult about that? What's what What is so crazy about that? And to me, going into the offseason, development of what your starting rotation is going to be next year is paramount, and it starts now. Because you have Jacob deGrom and a bunch of question marks. That's what you're at. You've gone from having four of the top 25 or top 50, depending on how you look at it, pitchers in all of baseball to anchor your rotation. Other than the fifth spot, you didn't really worry about getting a quality start. That was your one day, the Vargas day, where you worried, well, what am I going to get out of this guy? And that was the day that your bullpen probably got messed up, and that was the day if it came on when he was struggling, you got blown out, and maybe a losing streak was extended. Now you don't know. I hate the bullpen games, but they're going to be in vogue the rest of this year. You're going to see probably two or three of them in a five, uh, run, five-man run in a rotation. So what do you have going into the next year other than the ground? Well, you have David Peterson, who has a tired shoulder, and shoulders are a very serious injury, so we'll hold our breath on that, but we'll assume that there's something there um, positive. And Peterson has been a positive. He's shown you some moxie. He's shown you a competitive spirit. And there's something to be said for that. You've got Corey Oswalt, who has always struggled, pitched okay for a couple of innings, but couldn't get out of the fifth the other day. you got Franklin Killamay. We'll see what you got there. Uh, he's been coming out of the bullpen so far. What do you got, young pitcher? Walker Lockett, another guy to me that's filler. He's uh, you know, seven, eight, nine guy, a log guy. He's an up-and-down guy. I haven't seen anything there that uh, makes me think he's a solid back end of the rotation type. You have Kevin Smith, the young lefty down in uh, the alternate site, a kid that's made some real progress going up the ranks the last couple of years in the minor leagues. You don't know what you're going to get out of that. And then you have the conundrum, Stephen Matz. Uh, I love Matz. I think Matz could do a hell of a lot better. I know I've talked to some people who think maybe a change of scenery would help him. That would be a shame because I think he still can be a very valuable starter. I I think with Matz, you're going to every season go through periods where he looks lost and then he looks really good and then he looks lost. He's an inconsistent back end of the rotation pitcher who has a ton of talent who can tease you with top of the rotation runs. He can't give it to you on a moment's notice, I and mean, you wouldn't expect it, but he can tease you with it. And then there's Gazelman, who really hasn't pitched well for any stretch since that 2016 little run. I mean, Gazelman and Lugo were the two guys that saved the 2016 season, but guess what? It's Lugo that's really been an impact player after that season. Gazelman has been bullpen, rotation, you know, he's been okay at times. But he certainly hasn't been anything to, to write home about. So where where's that leave you? That leaves you, well, you have to go out and get yourself a veteran arm. Well, you have that in Rick Porcello, and I don't see why you couldn't get Rick Porcello to come back. He's a free agent. I don't know why you couldn't get him to come back. He's a local guy. I don't know if the market's going to be all that robust for him. So, all right, you plug in your back end of the rotation with uh, a Porcello. You, you may have Noah Syndergaard coming back next year, but... Who knows when that's going to happen? You know, Noah says I'll be ready for opening day. I don't, you know, he doesn't know. Memorial Day, you want to get aggressive? All right, that's optimistic. Realistically, if you're planning and you're being honest, that's a all-star break type of situation where he could be your back half of the rotation acquisition. 
And what Noah Syndergaard will you get first year back from Tommy John surgery? Now, he's he's going to be a free agent, so maybe there's going to be a little extra adrenaline going there. But what are you going to get? You don't know. So another question mark. So you basically have an ace, and you have your back in the rotation guy. So where do you go? You you need Seth Lugo. You need Seth Lugo because then if you put Seth Lugo in, you got your back end of the rotation guy. You've got DeGrom. Now you have Lugo who, I mean, why can't he be a 3-4? I mean, Mats is also kind of a 3-4. So now you basically have three or five spots with guys that, uh, let's say, realistically are back end of the rotation types. Although I think Lugo could sneak up. I mean, he's got multiple pitches, like I said in that opening. He he, you know, he's got a, a very intelligent approach to pitching. You can get a really good two years. I mean, can't you see a guy that can give you uh, a one twenty ERA plus, a one fifteen ERA plus, gives you six seven innings? Now I don't know how he could build himself up. I mean, he's gonna have to really work. Not gonna be able to do much this year, other than maybe five inning starts. And he certainly, if you're buying into the innings situation, I mean, you're looking at two years now before he could give you two hundred innings. He's not gonna give you two hundred innings. It's not in the cards. It doesn't matter anymore because nobody goes deep into games. But I think you could get a guy that could give you six innings as you build into next year and into the, the meat and potatoes of the season. So now that, that that makes your rotation that much more potent. And and now you have you have Porcello, you have Mats, you have Lugo, you have DeGrom, you have Peterson, you have Smith, who fills it out. Then you have your, your swing guys like Lockett and Oswalt. Those are your fillers on double headers. You know, obviously, you could go out and maybe bring yourself in some kind of, you know, low risk, high reward guy who may have fallen on hard times. You know, do you go now? The the real question then, and it'll be a discussion for later on when the season's over, is do you go back and do you resign Stroman after he bounced on you? And you know, how much is he going to get? What's his market going to be like? Because then you put Stroman in there, now that rotation is a little bit different because even with Lugo's potential, you don't know what you're going to get out of him. But you need him. Whether you sign Stroman or not, you need him because you need somebody that has some sort of history of success that can give you you know, six or seven innings. Now, I know he hasn't done it in a long time consistently, but he did it in flashes since then, and he has the desire to do it. He knows it's his ticket to make money. And at this point, if Seth Lugo the reliever and... That whole situation about how he has to manage is where you're at. It's to me, it's it's a half measure. But I will tell you, you cannot go back once you make this commitment. Unless he's a disaster, unless he goes in there and he shows that he's an excellent, top notch, one of the best relievers in all of baseball, and then becomes a mediocre, you know, very bad below league average. Let's say 85, 90 ERA plus doesn't even give you innings type of guy out of the rotation, then that's different. But I would really exhaust all possibilities before that happens. You've made the jump. You can't go back. The bullpen's a disaster. You can't go back. You have to manage Seth Lugo for Seth Lugo, not for the situation the Mets are in. You're past that point now. And is it a problem? Sure. Now you're relying on Edwin Diaz again. Buckle up. But Tonsez looks awful. Doesn't look healthy. Familia still can't throw strikes, and I told you guys this when he was signed, and nobody listens. Look at the numbers versus lefties. They were already becoming a problem before they signed them when they traded him back in 2018. They're a huge problem now. Lefties murder him. 
He's situational. You got to keep him array. If you put him in the lineup with it, and now with a three batter thing, it's a problem. But if you put him into the meat of an order where a tough lefty like a Freddie Freeman, Bryce Harper, he's either going to walk him or he's going to up a hit. Can't get him out. It's a big problem. That's not an elite reliever. Now you've got Drew Smith, you know, that potentially could come in and maybe do some things. Uh, Jared Hughes has been really important. Jason Shreve, who, by the way, is controllable next year, so that might turn out to be a very important move. These guys have really done some nice things. You know, maybe those, Brad Brock, hopefully he continues to get healthy and get us himself together. I mean, you can piece up, piece together the, the sixth, seventh, you know, maybe even the eighth. But then it becomes about Diaz in the ninth. And you know what? At this point, you got to live and die with it. The guy strikes out 20 batters per like a nine-inning game. And I know that he still walked the guy. You put him in an impossible spot. He should have been, again, Rojas has shown to go way too long with certain guys. It's the second time he went too long with Patances the other day. That was the last game that they, uh, I think they won before they before the shutdown here for the Mets. So buckle up. The bullpen is going to be a real interesting thing because if Patances doesn't get healthy, and you got to rely on him and Familia and big outs. Those are going to be sweaty situations. Those are very shaky guys for a variety of reasons. And maybe Jared Hughes steps up and, you know, he becomes a saving grace. Maybe Chasen Shreve has figured things out. Although I think he's going to be more of a bridge for two or three innings earlier in the game with the opener situation. I could see it where it's Lugo and then Shreve. And then you hand it over to Patances and Familia and Hughes and Brock. And then it's Diaz, and it's going to come down to Diaz, and you got to live or die with him. And then if you don't like it and you want to die with him, then you try to trade him in the offseason. You'll probably get 50 cents on the dollar. And uh, I don't know if you're going to bring a reliever that's going to achieve much more. He'll look different. You'll feel better, maybe for a little bit. But not many guys could strike out guys and miss bats at the rate that Diaz misses bats. And that's what makes a very good reliever. That makes a very good closer. It all ties together. But you can't go back anymore. You can't say, well, the Mets need a real good arm out of that bullpen. And now maybe in a pennant race, he could come in and help you out if your, your rotation's really strong and he becomes a luxury. But that's not what this season's about, and that's not going to be the early part of next season. And that's what you're doing now. That's what this is all about. Figuring out 2021. If this is going to be extended spring training on steroids, or this is going to be a tournament, yeah, you want to win and you want to have fun and you want to make sure that you know you do your part, but... That's not the focus. The focus is about what can you do for 2021. And Seth Lugo to the rotation now is not just something that we could debate and it'd be nice. It's imperative. Go up and down. The, you need you know, you know need 8, 9, 10 pitchers, maybe more, to get through a season. You don't have them right now. And if you have Seth Lugo, that makes it a lot easier to get to that and get to somebody that actually could contribute, not just fill in, contribute. Because Oswald and Walker Lockett, those are filling guys right now until otherwise they prove that they can give you you can't even give you six innings, three runs. That's what that's what a fifth starter should do. Porcello could do that. I mean, yeah, they're going to get smacked around here or there, but Oswald hasn't proven he could do that consistently. Lockett hasn't proved he could do that consistently. That's what you need. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, the Mets' ownership situation is starting to crystallize, and now it's getting important because the media is weighing in, and they're trying to direct things in a way that may not be best for the Mets, but best for them. We'll talk about that more right after this. Jay Horwitz ran the Mets' public relations for nearly four decades. What was his favorite group of players? The answer might remind you about the magic being back. My, my first season, 1980, I was a young kid coming from a small school in New Jersey, and Joe Torre really took me under his wing. Uh, on our first road trip to Montreal, he uh, 
He um, bought me seven of the ugliest cards known to mankind, and he 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 told me what it was like to be in the major leagues. And and in that group of guys in 1980, we're, you know, I'm still pretty close to them. Like you know, Doug Flynn, who um, second baseman, who signed uh, uh you know used to sing country and western. And he, he, we sang the Loretta Lynn band, and uh, we sang with the Oakland Boys. And you had a guy, a guy like uh, you know Joe Youngblood, who used to, uh, you know, go hunting with a bow and arrow. And Lehman Zilli was on that team. Lehman Zilli was Derek Jeter before Derek Jeter. I mean, he was a heartthrob, you know, a handsome guy from Brooklyn High School. And they kind of, you know, taught me what it was like to be in the majors. And we had, you know, Dyer Miller. I got a chance to get my friend Dyer. In those days, when you get with the towns like St. Louis and, and Chicago in this big training, we had Cal Murphy contests. And Dari was undefeated. He was, I remember, 4-0 and in Cal Lincoln contest. I was especially close to Dave Kingman. You know, Dave was uh, kind of a little bit honorary to press, but for some reason, all we hit it off. And, you know, one even one summer, he stayed at my house. We didn't have a place to live. So, And then and it all began to change in, in 83 when, when Daryl came and Keith came the next year. Uh, you know, you know, Doc and Ron Darling and Dave, and that's when we put together a good stretch uh, of winning from 1984 to 90. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Uh, in a little bit, just right after this segment, if you love wiffle ball growing up as a kid or still play wiffle ball, Pretty cool segment. I had a chance to catch up. And if you guys read Ball 9, which is where our friend Kevin Kernan, formerly of the New York Post, went to a a really cool website with some great stories. He did an article about six or seven weeks ago, uh, maybe a little less, about a a guy, Nathan Fidella, who created like almost like a wiffle ball tournament league. And he goes from town to town in Florida and birthday parties and things and plays wiffle ball. And I thought... Now, I remember some real fun time playing wiffle ball back growing up, and let's learn a little bit more about it. I'm not getting paid for it. It's not a paid segment, so I have no interest in it. I just thought it'd be fun to see what this is all about and and do something a little less serious because between the pandemic and the shutdown and you know being scolded by the media about lack of empathy for the Mets, you know, I, I said, you know, can we get some kind of lightheartedness? Uh, into the program, and I thought it might be something just to learn a little bit about what he's doing and maybe give you guys a trip down memory lane because I'm sure some of you guys, whether you grew up in the 70s or 80s, like you know, late early 90s like I did, you probably played wiffle ball and you probably pretended to be somebody at the plate or probably had some cool experiences and rules and games, so I thought we'd, uh, we'd come away with it. So um, Mets ownership situation. There was a really good article that I tweeted out from... Peter uh, Nesfold, he's a contributor, he's a wealth management uh, writer over at Forbes, and he talked about the Mets and the importance of what's going to happen next when it comes to ownership. And I've said this for a while, that the best story and the story that the media wants is for A-Rod to get the club. A-Rod, of course, is an iconic ball player, a guy that went through a soap opera narrative throughout his career very early as it was always reported as early as 1998 that he was going to become a free agent. He was going to sign with the Mets because he loved the Mets growing up. He loved the 86 Mets. He loved Keith Hernandez. And you all know what happened after the 2000 season and how he signed that big contract. 
and then uh, it became an albatross, and then he found his way to the evil empire, and he became part of that Yankees drama from 2004 with the collapse until basically he didn't redeem himself until 2009 when uh, he was a part of them winning the World Series with that 09 Yankees team. And then after that, you all know it went into the whole steroid situation and the admissions of what happened, and his body broke down. And then, of course, there was that final act, which was basically A-Rod coming out, uh, suing just about everybody, the league, in a thuggish way, going after him with fixers and everything to try to uncover dirt. Basically, it was MLB versus A-Rod, and uh, it wound up A-Rod losing a year of his career, and then coming back and a very contrite A-Rod going out with a whimper because he was still a power hitter, but he was nowhere near the impact hitter. That he was. Everybody knew when uh, Hank Steinbrenner, uh, the late Hank Steinbrenner, went out and signed A-Rod to that crazy contract uh, after he opted out and after Cashman said, well, if we opt out, we're not going to get involved. They just, you know, because he couldn't let A-Rod go, that the end of that contract was going to be bad. Ten-year deals never go well. You're going to see that with Bryce Harper. You're seeing that now with Albert Pujols. That's why if you're signing guys to ten-year deals, you better be sure that you're ready to eat a lot of money on the back end. And that transitions into where the Mets are as an ownership group. A-Rod and J-Lo and Rapoli, who, you know, the vitamin water guy and Viola down in Florida, whoever the hell else they have in that group. It just reeks to me of Roger Dorn in Major League. Owner trying to get out. What great way to sell the team then to a star. Dorn was a star in that fictitious movie to uh, for the Indians. He wasn't really a great guy. And then he tries to, like, own the team and almost become that guy that everyone loves. And what happens? He runs out of money, and then uh, the Indians are back where they are. And I feel like that's what's going to be the case with the Mets and A-Rod. I think it'll be ballyhooed. I think for a year or two, it'll be fine. But if you look at where the Mets are at, I mean, they've got a bunch of really key guys that are going to be free agents between you know 2022 and 2023, or even as early as... This coming winter, you have Syndergaard coming up, Conforto, Lugo in 2023, Nimmo in 2023, Edwin Diaz, DeGrom actually could be a free agent in the next you know four years. There's an opt-out. Justin Wilson this winter, Marcus Stroman you have to make a decision on. That's some serious money. You're going to need to go. And we're of course, we're basing everything with current salary rates, which I don't think will apply for the next two to three years. With this uncertainty about fans and attendance, and even if things open up in the spring of next year where you could have you know, some kind of capacity, let's say they open it up to where you could have whatever the hell you want, which I don't think would happen, 40% of your revenue is going to be down for a while, significantly down, even in the best-case scenario. And when that happens, expect salaries to be reduced appropriately. You could lie to yourself and say they have money and they need to invest more in payroll. They're not. And the players could strike from now until the end of time. It's not going to change. The money's not there. Economic uncertainty's not there. Who knows what happens from a political process between uh, November and opening day. There's uncertainty. And owners are going to, regardless of what you think of them, they're going to pull back. So you need an owner, especially now that you heard the financials are ugly, that the Mets are going to lose money for maybe up to five years. 40% of the revenue that would help with that number is in jeopardy. And I don't know how much you can make up of that just virtually. I mean, you can, and television's powerful, but a revenue stream disappears, a revenue stream disappears. You just can't, you know, make it up all the time somewhere else. 
And that's why you need someone like Steve Cohen, who has deep pockets, who's already involved with the organization, already knows what to expect. He's been part of the uh, capital calls. I know for a fact there was one. I heard about that back in the spring. I talked to a very well-connected source that told me that the minority owners had to come up with money. And I heard, you know, there was reports of a second one. I can't vouch for that, but if there was a first one, I wouldn't be surprised, especially what you hear. And I see the, you know, Jeff Wilpon hates Cohen and the owners don't want him. You know, why do you think the owners don't want him? The owners don't want someone coming in who's not on script. They're afraid the guy's going to come in. He's got a big ego. He's got a ton of money. He's going to say, I don't care about a pandemic. I don't care that 40% of my revenues are in jeopardy. I'm going to act like this is, you know, 2000 and whatever. And I'm just going to go out there and, and clean this thing up and spend and make a big splash. And he very well may do that. We'll love him. And there's the dangers to that, too. You don't want someone coming in just throwing over the kitchen table and making a name for himself on the front of the papers because that could turn out to be a disaster as well from a baseball standpoint. You want to be very logical. You want to take a step back. You want to use your money as the weapon that it can be in the most efficient way possible. And that doesn't mean by you know coupon clipping with uh, value-free agents. I don't want them to go out and just find the next Chase and Shreve for the bullpen. You know, you want them to go out there and spend some money and plug the holes. And, and part of that might be, hey, you know, maybe overpaying a little bit for Justin Wilson when he's a free agent. Or maybe overpaying to get Marcus Stroman to come back in here. Or, you know, locking up Michael Conforto. Uh, you know, maybe taking a risk with Syndergaard. Who knows? It's a ton of things. You, these are conversations for another day. But you need a guy that's willing to lose some money for three, four, five years. And I don't think the A-Rod group could do that. And I think if the A-Rod group comes in, it'll be a great story. You know, Baseball star, minority ownership, local, you know, you know, local flair with J Lo Rapoli, who's you know probably a hardcore Mets fan. I mean, I don't know if Cohen's really a Mets fan. You hear he is, and now he's a minority owner, so I'm sure he, he likes the team. But does he really love the team? You know, he's living in a different world now. He's living in the you know one percent of one percent world now. Very few people are as wealthy as you get when you get to the Cohen world, and those are not really usually hardcore fans looking to sit in the. You know, even the front row of a baseball game, you know, on a Sunday in July when they face the Pirates. Those are not, you know, Rapoli might be that guy. I'm not sure Cohen is, but Cohen's got the money. And you could become a pretty big fan of sports when it's your name on there on the door. And you're the guy that is clearly a competitive guy if you're in the world he's in. And you're going to want to win. You think the Yankees want him in? You think the Yankees want to have competition the media loves the fact that the Mets are the engine that could. The media loves ragging on the Mets. And what better way to continue that whole narrative than to bring a guy that is a former Yankee that has skeletons in his closet and have him struggle and still find a way to, you know, nickel and dime the situation because it'll be the same thing all over. And it'll be, for lack of a better word, the Wilpon situation on steroids. If you're going to have someone coming in without any cash flow, and the ability to withstand losses. I don't care if their name is Wilpon, A-Rod, whatever. It's the same thing. You might as well keep the Wilpons at that point. You hate them because they've been around for a while. But let's be clear. There could be many versions of the Wilpons out there. And groups that have all this money to cobble together to buy a, let's use the analogy, a really expensive car. Do you have any money to put a gas in a tank? Do you have any money for upkeep? Are we going to even be able to drive that car? And Harris Blitzer down in Philly... That's just an investment. Do you really want an owner that's just investing in the team to have it as part of a sports portfolio? Is there any passion to that? You think they're going to take a lot of losses in a situation like that? 
No, they're going to grab it, and it's going to be like a stock. Hey, I'm not saying they're going to do anything wrong with it. So what does that leave you? leaves you with one guy. And if Rob Manfred, by reports, wants the Mets to not become a, a disaster, to not become the Miami Marlins, to not sink any further, because you're staring down the abyss of a Miami situation right now. This pandemic assured the Wilpons that they can't skate from this. Yeah, I know they're trying to keep a 5% stake, and I'm sure they're going to try to put some wonky clause where they could get a bigger stake as they get healthy. Can't allow it to happen. They're in a corner. They're like a trapped animal. They can't hold on to this team. I mean, they could. I don't know how they do it financially. They could just rip the whole thing apart, and you know, I think that's going to clearly not be an option that the league will allow. Um, you got one guy. I don't want to hear about insider trading. You know, you guys all sit around. I see all the sanctimony. Oh, this one's a bad person. This one. You all judge. The funny part is you all judge. Because they're rich, they're evil. Well, guess what? Rich people pay your salary if you're working. They pay your salary. And sometimes you got to do things that are within the gray area of the rules. He didn't kill anybody. You, you, know, you know how a corrupt baseball as a, a league has been for over 100 years? Go back. Go back in its history. You're going to tell me baseball with all the skeletons in its closets, as recently as with the A-Rod situation. Baseball didn't come out looking good. Go back. I was on ESPN Radio talking about that, hiring Ray Donovan-type fixers to go after A-Rod. That sounds like an ethical league to you, to, to, to dig up dirt on one of your own stars. You know, the segregation, all the things that have gone on for years and years and years, the cronyism, you know, all sorts of stuff. You know, some of the people that you respect the most have some of the biggest skeletons in their closet. It shouldn't matter. You know, he paid his fine. Insider trading is something that is a crime. There's a lot of layers. There's politics involved with it. Um, you know, when you're rich and you make the kind of money, you have a lot of people aiming the proverbial guns at you. It's not an easy life to live in some ways. So I'm not going to get all crazy about the insider trading thing. And by the way, it tells me I got a guy that's willing to push the limit live in the gray area, push forward to compete and win, and they haven't had that in here for a long time. Mets, you know, under the Wilpons have always been so glad-handing to the Yankees. The Yankees are so corrupt. The Yankees are so uh, arrogant. They push the rules. I had, I was in a, 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 a meeting. Brian Cashman, Joe Girardi, and a bunch of writers back when Girardi's first spring. And even Cashman admitted in the meeting. I remember sitting there going, wow, look at this, how they pushed the envelope with roster moves at that time. To figure out ways that they could get a competitive edge. They're, they're, they're smart. That's what they do. I was there. It was on my own ears that heard it. It's not me hearing it secondhand. There's one guy that makes sense. The only guy. And he's going to pony up the money. And I know it's not the guy that the league probably wants. It's not the guy that Jeff Wilpon wants. It may not be the narrative that's the best narrative. It would be great to see A-Rod clean up his reputation and maybe make the Hall of Fame by turning around the Mets because they'll, you know, all of a sudden you have a great baseball team and he's in front of the cameras. People might forget that, you know, he should be in the Hall of Fame at some point because of his career and his numbers. He didn't need steroids to get there. I mean, he needed them to stay healthy towards the end of his career. But to me, that is more about a Rod, and it's a risk that the Mets just cannot take right now. This team needs someone with cash to burn that's willing to take losses that's willing to withstand the pain over the next two to three years because they can compete and win because the only other option then with an owner is to come in, tear it down, and you got three to four to five years of austerity. And in the middle of an economic crisis, in the middle of the sport not having fans, and the sport not even looking close to what it should look like, you could lose a generation of fans. It may take a decade or more to recover from that. Nobody talks about that. 
You cannot tear this thing down. You have to compete and win, especially now. Especially now when fans are home, have been without you, will be without you. I mean, think about it. When this season's over and you don't make it till April of next year, you would have went nine or so months out of a 12-month span without any baseball on television. That's a lot of time to find and do something else. If you're a Mets fan or a young Mets fan who just got into it, you may not care that they come back. And you're certainly not going to care if there's a 100-loss team that's rebuilding so that the owner could find a way to make it happen financially. So there's one guy, and the Mets need a guy that can withstand losses, a guy that has a strong personality that's willing to mix it up. This organization has needed it for a long time. And who cares what Jerry Reinsdorf says? I certainly don't care what the Yankees want, and I certainly don't care about the media and their morality because they have no equity in my book. They're the least moral out of everybody. They've shown that over the last six, seven months since this whole crap started with the way they've handled a lot of reporting about a lot of things both in sports and out. So anyway, that's my take on the ownership situation. I think that's where it will end up in Steve Cohen's lap. But I don't think it's going to be easy, and I think the Wilpons are going to go down and to use a political term, an October surprise, there may be an August 31st surprise. It's coming up in just a week. We'll hear more about it. So buckle your seatbelts. You're going to hear more about the ownership situation. And that's going to be another theme for the rest of 2020, which has impact. I've been saying from the start, everything we talk about and do this year, as much as we want to win uh, and see a winning team, uh, it has to do with 2021 and beyond because that's all you can really do to have value in the crazy season that we're faced. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, little wiffle ball. You guys remember it. Let's hear from Nathan Fidella and his project, Backyard Rule, backyardrule.com, and talk a little bit about wiffle ball and what he's doing down in Florida. Maybe it's going to be coming to a town near you up here in the Northeast. We'll be back with more right after this. We're back, and we're going to let our hair down a little bit here. Uh, joining me is Nathan Fidella, and if you guys are fans of uh, Kevin Kernan, uh, Kevin Kernan at his new uh, website, uh, Ball9, uh, I believe it was, uh, had a chance to catch up with with Nathan and what he does. Uh, it brings us back, at least me, to my childhood. Backyardrule.com, uh, these guys are playing some wiffle ball. And uh, Nathan's here to chat a little bit. And Nathan, welcome to the program. And uh, it's been a long time since I thought about wiffle ball. Uh, probably late 80s, early 90s. I'm in my 40s now. But looking at the videos on your website, reading the article that you did with Kevin Kernan, um, pretty cool stuff. Well, how you doing? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is something that brought you back and why you're doing this to your childhood. Hey, what's up, Mike? Thank you for having me. And, yeah, we're having a lot of fun doing what we're doing. Just so you know, if you ever wanted to play, 40s is well within prime from what I've seen. Oh, you think you think so? so? Well, it's been uh, it's last the last time I played wiffle ball, I was pretending to be Dave Magan at the plate. So that tells you how how old I am. But uh, I, I'll listen. I'm old. No, I I I would say the oldest player that we have had that still comes out and plays is probably early mid 50s. Wow. Wow. So let those listening know a little bit about what you do. Obviously, it's wiffle ball. You have some, uh, you know, little, uh, I might want to say quirks, but some different rules as well. But talk a little bit about you, what you do at Backyard Rule. Yeah. 
So uh, we are a startup sports entertainment business, and 90% of what we do is wiffle ball related events. But um, my goal with it is to just be uh, a sports entertainment event service, not necessarily just wiffle ball. That's what, mostly what we do. But um, yeah, we started in 2015. I um, purchased some equipment like turf, fences, foul poles, and sort of built my own miniature wiffle ball field, which uh, was able to be broken down and traveled around, packed in the back of a truck, and set up on any large grass field. So started out promoting some events in St. Augustine, like kids' birthday parties, fundraisers, youth baseball team um, events, uh, and I slowly worked my way into other cities. Our first city that we um, traveled to to host an adult tournament would be Port St. Lucie, and it yeah. took off from there. We uh, we had several players come out, and yeah, talking Mets, I know there's plenty of Mets fans down in Port St. Lucie, so hopefully some of them hear this, um, but we started promoting in Port St. Lucie. It went really well figure why not try and promote it in other cities around Florida, uh, all within like a five or six hour drive of where I am in St. Augustine. So what we've done for the past several years is host uh, single day tournaments in probably like six to eight different cities in Florida. Uh, the tournaments last roughly three hours. And at the end of the day, there's a winner they get some photo credit on our social media pages. And I also have a little GoPro out there and do my best to compile the best highlights of each event. You, uh, if you're at chance, if you're online, you can go to backyardrule.com at backyard rule, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm assuming, and obviously you want to do more than just wiffle ball. It sounds like, but you must've got this idea because you're a fan of wiffle ball or played at some point. I mean, I, like I said, I played when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn. We used to have, you know, you'd have to stop for the cars going down the block. We played between the driveways. I had a friend who had a driveway. I would pitch on the other side of the driveway. You know, all sorts of crazy rules where, you know, obviously roofing the ball was a big deal. If you hit someone's window, it was a double. You know, triple was a little higher. Home run a little higher than that. And it's funny now today. You know, I, I think if somebody was playing with a ball in front of my house, I'd probably get mad if it was smacking off my window. Nobody cared back then. Uh, so talk a little bit about football <laughs> to me, uh, it gets lost because when I was a kid, the NBA became popular. I thought, cause all you needed was a basketball and you could play three on three. You could play one-on-one, you could play full court, uh, three point contest, horse, all sorts of things with a basketball baseball harder, but with wiffle ball, I think you brought maybe some of the components to what you can do with a basketball and the different ways you could play basketball to, uh, a form of baseball, I guess I would say. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. I, well, I grew up playing baseball uh, and obviously wiffle ball. We had this epic backyard wiffle ball field in where I'm from, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and that's really where the foundation for what I'm doing now was laid. Uh, almost every night during the summer, we would have four to 10 kids over there um, playing and it didn't really matter your age or like, you know, what school you went to. We try and work everybody in 
and everyone seemed to have a good time. And with what I'm doing now, like you said, the flexibility and the rules, even though we are, you know, we have our set rules, um, the, what I try to be, um, you know, the biggest challenge for me is setting uh, the atmosphere and the style of play in our culture to be something that is competitive, but also easygoing uh, and where sportsmanship rules first. And our business name, Backyard Rule, and our slogan is bringing our backyard to you. And that is what I'm really trying to do with the business is create a model that somewhat resembles the style of play uh, as you would have had in your backyard as a kid, which is easygoing, but fun and competitive, and obviously a little bit more organized and structured because I've got to plan and promote events, you know, months out to make sure we get some kind of turnout for them. But, um, yeah, any, now some any, of the rules, anytime I with find... The, with some of the rules you guys have, you know, obviously throwing the, you know, at the runner gets them out and... um you know, you struck out. I mean, there's this actually interesting strike zone you've created. So you've added, like you said, structure, and uh, it's not just a free-for-all. You've added some structure and created your own little wiffle ball league, so to speak. Oh, yeah, definitely have. Um, and the guys that come and play, you know, the new players have to catch on. Uh, I go over the rules as thoroughly as I can with them. But the guys who have been playing for a while, it's cool to see them kind of learn, know the rules for themselves, and then apply their own strategy. And um, uh, our rules are a little different than I know what a lot of the leagues up in New York or, you know, the North or Midwest have. Uh, biggest difference is that we're a slow-pitch league. Um, reason being, maybe this is just my preference. I grew up playing baseball as a position player. And uh, obviously hated striking out at the plate. Maybe this is selfish, but while I was on defense, is like strikeouts are just the most boring thing at, ever. Uh, is, I think any infielder could vouch. The worst thing is standing on third or short or second all game long, not getting the ball hit to you. So with our league being slow pitch, there's a lot more action. There's a lot more balls in play. Uh, it gives the opportunity for so many more like great plays, robbing home runs, peg plays, diving in the infield, just because there is so much more contact. And strikeouts still happen, but uh, they're just you know they're not as common. And uh, one up. of the rules that we have, one of the rules we've added is uh, we've got a a circle in the top of our strike zone where if a pitcher throws a ball through that circle, it's an automatic out which forces the hitter to be more reluctant to take pitches and slow the game down. Growing up in Cincinnati, I'm assuming you're a Reds fan. Everybody playing wiffle ball, I think listening to this audience, uh, probably at whatever era they were, pretended to be a pitcher or a hitter that they liked. Uh, you know, who were you growing up? What was your uh, wiffle ball fantasy? You know, did you take on someone's batting stance? Or uh, were you just uh, were you just Nathan? Were you just yourself? What talk a little bit about wiffle ball when you you were growing up? Oh yeah, I'm definitely um, a Reds fan at heart. I can't say that I was, you know, trying to reenact any 
Reds players at the time. Um, my favorite player has always been Derek Jeter. So if I had to, if I had to pick one player that I would try and, uh, you know, I guess model myself after it was always, it would always be Jeter. Um, but growing up and playing, uh, I can't, you know, I, our, we, we never really, you know, assigned players uh, that we were trying to um, mimic. We kind of just, uh, we kind of just had at it in our own way. And um, yeah, I, man, I wish the Reds the best. I'll be honest. I don't really follow them, but anytime that they're on, I'll try and watch the game. Um, uh, but yeah, they, uh, our backyard wiffle ball field, which my dad named, he named it the great American backyard wiffle ball field. So I guess <laughs> after great American ballpark, that's pretty so, yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, there is, there is a little relevance to the Reds there. Nathan Fidella, uh, Backyard Rule. Uh, these games, if you go on uh, BackyardRule.com, you see some highlights. These games get competitive. I mean, if you have any stories about great comebacks, uh, great, you know, just give a feel because, I, you know, yeah, it's wiffle ball. And, you know, obviously everybody's different skill set and age group, like you just mentioned earlier. But it looks like these games get competitive and real fun. Any, any good stories about uh, games that you've seen that you know, have had some wild finishes? Um, there have been too many just comebacks that should not have happened to even count or upsets where you have a veteran team out there made full of adults who get beat by like a couple teenagers or, you know, there's, that happens all the time. And that's kind of the beauty of baseball. And I guess wiffle ball is that, um, it's an underdogs game where you can be the favorite team, but it doesn't come down to just muscle and strength you know a lot can happen a lot can go for you or against you which leaves a lot of flexibility for the end result what I would have to say um, are my favorite situations or moments would be just seeing when really excellent sportsmanship is displayed Um, one of well the backyard rule by definition which I'll go over with my participants before every event, the guys that play all the time probably get sick of me going over it, but I try to start out each event by talking to everyone going over what the backyard rule is, which essentially is playing without umpires. Like it was in your back rule backyard as kids. Uh, it is self policed. So people will have to make their own calls on safe and out. As you can imagine, that is sometimes difficult with a competitive crowd. Um, but I have been very surprised at how well people have done at that. There can, you know, it'll be a bang-bang play and a real crucial part of the game. And guys, you know, naturally sometimes get a little bit chirpy with each other. But for the most part, people have been really good about stepping back, looking at it from the outside. Um, And it takes a little reinforcement from myself also to remind everyone that it is just a game and we're here to have fun. There have been times when uh, I've had to step in more than I would like to. But for the most part, once an event starts, I get to step back and just watch uh, because the event runs itself um, due to, uh, you know, how much I'm able to rely on people's just good, good nature towards each other and good sportsmanship.
one of the fun things when you watch some of these videos is that you actually have the the fence. It's like a uh, I guess a mesh type fence, the outfield fence. And I've seen a number of people they go flopping over there, making great plays. I mean, that's that to me stood out. I mean, nobody seems to worry about getting hurt. They're jumping over that fence. It looks like a lot of those home runs. Not only that, they jump over and wait for the ball. If they hit it that far, wait for the ball to come down. So it's got a, a little flare there where there's uh, – yeah, there's a fence, but it, everything seems to be in play. Yeah, it's, so the, the way that rule works is they are allowed to dive over a fence and make the catch. Um, they're not allowed to hit the ground on the other side of the fence and then make the play. So it's not like you can – climb over the fence and run down a ball that's hit 20 feet over the fence. Uh, but if you say jump or dive, make a catch and then fall over the fence, it, it does count. And there've been some really great catches made that, uh, you know, his hand might've touched the other side of the fence first uh, that were, you know, it's just made it subject for debate. But um yeah, those those are probably my favorite plays would have to be the home run robs. And guys also get creative with it. If they don't feel that they can make the catch, they'll dive and try and slap it back into the field to one of their players to make the catch. Uh, we play pitcher's poison, so ground balls get thrown back to the pitcher, which guys will get creative with that too. If it's a slow roller just past the pitcher, guys will charge a ball and maybe do like a slap back play to the pitcher, or if it's real low, I've seen a couple of nice kick plays. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing how creative guys will get with, you know, what it doing what they have to do to uh, to make the play. And base runners too. I love seeing those crazy base runners that aren't afraid to force someone to make a peg because that fielder misses with the peg, and that's just what that runner wants. They get one or two extra bases, and all the fielders start panicking, and everyone looks over and. Yeah, you know, it's there's a lot of opportunity for very exciting plays like that with the format that we've created. Brings back a lot of memories for me. So yeah, backyardrule.com at backyardrule on Twitter, Instagram. Nate, what do you what else you got? Anything else you want the listeners to know about before I let you go here? Uh, definitely brought us back in the time machine, and obviously I know you're down in Florida, but uh, if anyone's listening that's outside of the New York area, an opportunity at some point to uh, organize a, a game as well. Yeah, I guess the last thing uh, I would like to say is that although we are just in Florida now, I will I see nothing stopping us from making our way up north. Um, for anyone that is listening in Florida, some of our upcoming events uh, in September are Sarasota on Saturday, September 5th, Palm Harbor on September 6th, and Port St. Lucie on the 12th. We also have a fundraiser with Vero Beach Little League on September 26th. So all of that's on the on the website and on our Instagram page if anyone's interested. Well, really brought back some memories. I appreciate you giving me a few minutes of your time. Be well. We'll be uh, continuing to check in. And when you get up to New York, we'll have to get a Talking Mets uh, podcast tournament going. So keep us posted as you make oh, your way up to the Northeast, my friend. I will. Thank you so much for having me on, Mike. Take care, Nate. That's uh, Nathan Fidella, Backyard Rule, at Backyard Rule on Twitter, Instagram. Ah, reminds me of the days I used to pretend to be Mackie Sasser, Dave Magan, and I'm lefty, so any kind of lefty back then. I have home run derbies, the first time you roof the ball, 
hitting someone's uh, window, you know, bay window, uh, waiting for the cars to come by. You know, I lived on uh, in Bensonhurst on 18th Avenue and 71st Street. Uh, I used to play around the corner, and we played driveway to driveway. And unlike what Nate was talking about, uh, pitching was 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 not uh, lobs. It was sliders and curveballs and split fingers and a little tough to hit sometimes, especially if someone was throwing hard. I had one guy throw pretty hard, so you'd have to have uh, you'd have to have your game going on. And I'll tell you what, I do think wiffle ball screwed up my swing for regular baseball, but that's uh, another story for another day. All right, wanted to let our hair down with something a little different. We got intense conversation so far today. Let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We like to look back at Mets history at the Talking Mets podcast, like on August 10th, 2017, when Dave Malicki joined me as we remembered his shutout of the Yankees in the first ever Subway Series in 1997. The thing that always comes to my mind is just obviously just, you know, striking out Jeter to end the game. That was like, um, the, you know, that was, that was a thrill. But, that, you know, the game was in hand at that point, obviously, and I had the bullpen warming up and everything was going. But um, that's, that's the, you know, the big memory I have. Um, some other ones were some other strikeouts. Um, you know, early, you know, in the middle middle parts of the game, I, and I did, I gave up a bunch of hits. I felt like I could, you know, the big guys were getting out, and then um, not the little guys, you don't want to say that, but the, the back end of the order, I had trouble with those guys. And, um, you know, that that's that's where I, you know, I got into trouble. I feel like I gave up a hit almost every inning. I was like, holy cow. But it was just, I, I felt like I could get out of anything, which was which was really um, and a good feeling. And, um you know, I think to start the game, I think Jeter got a hit, reached out an air on second, and then got and then I just, you know got the next three guys out. And I didn't let them advance, and that that gave me a ton of confidence. Just that first inning really kind of set the tone for me. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. And I listen, I thought it was just something a little bit different to throw out there and, and take your mind off of some of the craziness that's been going on. Interesting concept. Maybe Nathan, you know, comes up our way. Maybe we get a Talking Mets podcast wiffle ball tournament going. That would be fun, right? You guys could watch me throw my knuckleball if that's allowed because I think you have to throw an arc pitch in this whole thing. But I thought it would be a way for you guys to take a trip down memory lane. Just remember if you played with football wherever you are or you're playing now, if you still are young enough to have time for that or you play with your kids or what have you. But like I said in the open, there's, you know, let's listen to Pete a little bit. Let's let's try to look at the positives. You know, things are not where they should be, where you want them to be, and there's certainly going to be more wild rides. Buckle up for that. But not everything is always bad. So, uh, you know, backyard rule. Uh, there's an article over at Bull 9 with uh, Kevin Kernan from uh, about a month or so ago. Check that out. And uh, and away we go. So uh, what will the week bring? What will our next show bring? I mean, there's supposedly a five-game series for the double, uh, with a bunch of doubleheaders coming up with the Yankees and the Mets. Who the heck knows? It's a big week. The Mets are about halfway through. Uh, you know, they were making some hay. They were, there was some momentum. And like I said in the opening... No deals, you know. You got to sign some people to fill out the roster, and who knows when this when this podcast comes out, what news will come out about who can play, who can't play for the the Mets Marlins series coming up this week. But uh, Mets have an opportunity to get to 500, continue to make their way in the NL East, and be one of the half of the league that makes the playoffs. Uh, 
in this wacky 2020 exhibition season, tournament season on steroids. But anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody for joining in. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. You guys know the name of this stuff. Of course, you want to send me a note, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your week. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.